We're continuing our series on the difficult questions. You know, if you've missed any of these, you know, week one, we did old earth versus young earth. Week two, last week, we did Darwinian evolution versus theistic evolution versus intelligent design. I promise not to be as academic today as we had to last week. That was a bit of a crazy discussion. Uh, This week, I want to talk about a question I got from a lot of you all, uh, which was really people wrestling with some of the things you read in the Bible. It just doesn't seem to square with your understanding with God. Um, and, and I know this one's kind of been a difficult one for me to get through to research and prep on uh, because I remember, especially the first time I read the Bible, wrestling with these same things. There's a the few things that kept coming up uh, that I, I, I heard you all trying to deal with. The first one was, was all the mass killings that occur in the Old Testament. Uh, that's just tough. That's tough to deal with. So like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the firstborns of the Egyptians, you know, all being killed, you know, uh, there after the plagues. Uh, the Canaanite conquest is probably, for me personally, the one that really, really was tough. Uh, the instructions that God gives the Israelites as they're going into the promised land, as they are uh, really evacuating the, the peoples of that land, as God gives it over to them. I mean, there's some pretty tough language in there just in terms of the different people who are killed, there's women and children killed as a result of all of this. I mean, that, that, that's hard. That, that's hard for anyone uh, to really understand and wrestle with. So that was a, a big concern that kept coming up. And the other concerns, I think, kind of get wrapped around a very similar thought process was the idea of suffering, right? If, if these things are occurring, if we see God allowing this, sometimes directing these things, it also seems like you know God is directing suffering, or at worst case, allowing suffering to occur. How do we square that idea? Uh, and then also, which again, it all kind of falls in the same line of thinking. We see this idea that uh, if God is judging people, if sin is something that is judged, you know, doesn't it seem unfair that there's all these innocent people who don't seem to have a shot? Right? All the people in the Old Testament who maybe didn't know God, the, the innocent tribesmen example, right? I mean, think about the Native Americans in America who, hadn't, who didn't know God. It just, it's like, what happened to those people? Or what, what, what became of those people? Were there eternal consequences for those people? Were there not? How do we square that understanding? So all of these kind of come down into the same line of thinking. I'm going to walk through those today. My plan is we're going to do a group discussion here in just a moment. Uh, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some pretty simple answers for a couple of these questions, but then I want to get to the root of why we're actually asking those questions, why it is that we struggle with those things. We can get into some principles of that. So what I want you to do, though, to really kick off the discussion today is I want you to talk at your tables, and I want you to talk about what is it, which of these three main issues that, that, that I just discussed are, is the hardest for you to deal with personally? Right? Is, it, is it the idea of mass killings in the Old Testament that seem to be directed by God? Is it the idea that God allows suffering in this world? How does a good God allow suffering or permit it to occur? Uh, or is it the fact that there seems like it's just unfair to some people who don't have the same shot we do to respond to God's grace? Right? What, what, what is it that you know, just not understanding what happens to those people is that seemingly unfairness? Which of those three topics is really hardest for you to wrestle with and why? Talk about that for a little bit and we'll, we'll come back. Get back here. All right, everybody. Um, 
Did everybody figure all this out? We don't even need to teach this lesson today. Did we? We already got. You guys got this nailed down. Okay. No, it doesn't look like it. I got a lot of lost faces. I'm looking at. So, so let's let's break this down a little bit. So, what I want to do, like I said, I want to give you a couple answers, and 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 we could spend, yeah, we could spend a whole lot of time on all of these questions. We could spend multiple weeks. But I'm going to give you some Cliff Notes version of of a couple of these answers. But then, what I really want to get to today. Uh, because these an answers are a bit ambiguous, and you really need to think through them, and there's lots of different viewpoints. But what I want to really get to today is what I really feel like is underlying these questions that we're asking. So first, one, well, first topic I want to cover, though, let's talk about these mass killings. right? Just, like I said, take the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the firstborns of the Egyptians, and the conquest of Canaan uh, that you'll read about you know, there in the first five books of the Bible. Right? right? Let's... Let's take those examples um, and, and try to understand them. And so if you were to pick a passage out of the Bible, pick a verse and read it, it's really difficult to understand what's going on whenever you pick that verse out. And so every good Bible teacher in the world will always tell you, never cherry pick in the Bible. Never, never pick a verse out and think that you've uncovered the complete truth. You've got to have the con context of everything that's going on. What happened before? What happened after? What's the cultural context that's going on? What was God trying to do? What's the meaning of it? Uh, you need to be really careful uh, of the conclusions you come to as you read God's word. And so when you read about these mass killings, one thing you'll find is that all of these events really followed a very similar pattern in the Old Testament. And, and whenever you look at the pattern uh, that comes through, you start to see something that, that helps you understand these things a little bit better. So normally, whenever you see these, these events occur, you see that God is judging the people for something, right? He is judging the people for some sin, normally atrocious sins, right? He is executing judgment at that point in time for sin. That is true, right? And, and if you, if you, if you, if, if you learn nothing else, it's like, God's not cool with sin, right? I mean, that's like, there is sin that is being judged. That being said, if you look at all these events, God has given the people incredible amounts of time to repent of their sins, right? He has. He has, he has been very patient, giving them time to turn from their sin, give them opportunities to come back to him, come around, eliminate the rebellion, come back to his ways, he also always sends witnesses. He always sends people with his word to warn the people. Right, if you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to see this in the early days in Genesis. You're going to see this later on in the Old Testament whenever you get into the prophets. You're always going to find it where God is sending loving warnings, loving warnings and messages to the people, trying, pleading with them, pleading with them to change their ways, right? to repent, to change their direction. And lastly, you're also always going to find examples and stories in this where people have been granted salvation through their faith in God as they have repented. Right? I mean, think about, think about the example of Rahab right, in the Old Testament whenever Joshua and everyone is coming through when the conquests are beginning and she turns to God, right? And salvation comes through. And you see that time and time again. But you see this pattern over and over again. There is sin that's, that needs to be judged, right? God has a reason for what he's doing. He has given the people time to repent. 
He has sent witnesses, prophets, warnings, everything to the people. Right? You see it time and time. And then there are people where you see who have responded. And salvation comes through their faith. Right? Now, take that pattern that, you just, that I just articulated and think about it in terms of our context today. Think about it in the New Testament lens. Think about divine judgment. Will God judge the world for their sins? Yes. Okay, what, how, how does that happen? Like, let's, let's get practical. How do we know that God will judge the world for its sins? Right. We understand that in the second coming of Christ, he comes as the judge, right? We, we, we see this time and time again. Like, we, we know that all sins will be judged. Every sin, price will be paid for every sin. It's either going to be paid on judgment or will be paid on the cross, right? But every sin will be paid for. So we see that judgment will occur. But God, is, in his patience, has given us time to repent. We see that, we, we see that explicitly in the New Testament text, where we understand that, that, that people do have this time. In his grace, he has given us time to repent and come to him. We also know, just like in the Old Testament, where God sent messengers... In the New Testament, same thing. God has sent people to witness to the good news, to, to witness to the gospel, to help people understand and to repent. Who has he sent out into this world to do that? Us, the church, right? He has sent us. He is using us as his messengers to go and give people these loving warnings to repent in truth and love, right? In truth and love to help them repent, to change their directions, and then lastly, just like in the Old Testament where we see people who have been granted salvation through their faith, we see people today who are granted salvation through their faith. Not through their works, not through their good deeds, but through their faith as they repent and change their direction and follow Christ. Right? The same pattern exists in the New Testament that existed back in the Old Testament. That's one of the common threads I think it's really helpful to see. We have always been granted salvation through faith. Right? Always. Right? It's always been through faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. Right? All the way through, we've been granted salvation through faith. That same pattern exists today, just with a new understanding of the new covenant. And so I want you to see that as you, as you read these stories that are hard, hard, know that God has been at work in a long time. Know that sin does need to be judged. Right? Know that these are difficult. It is difficult to put yourself into the story where God is executing judgment. That is hard. Right? But it's also why God has sent us out into the world today. Right? In his love and grace, he has sent us out to help people understand, to repent, and turn to him. Same thing was happening back in the Old Testament. What you do learn through these stories is you learn a lot about the nature of God in these stories. Now, I want you to think about it. Here's just some, some things I pulled out. If you go back to these mass killings in the Old Testament, as hard as they are to understand, we understand that God is a holy God, right? God is a holy God. He does not tolerate sin. And that, that's something that you have to know. By God's nature, right, by his very nature, he cannot be something that ta- someone who tolerates sin. That would be antithetical to the understanding of who God actually is. We would not, and I just want to stop on that for a second. We would not want to worship a God who was casually okay with sin. That would not be a God worthy of worship. That would not be a holy God. As hard as that is to kind of wrap our brains around, we must 
understand a God who is holy and just, and all things come from that holiness and his love. Right? So, so we have to be careful of that. But, but we understand from this, he is holy, he does not like sin. But we also see in these stories that at all times, God is protecting his people. Right? If we understand our relationship with Christ, our relationship with God as a child to a loving father, which is a great way to understand your relationship with God, if we understand that we have been adopted heirs of Christ, right, that we are in the family of God, the Old Testament passages should give you a lot of peace because time and time again you see God protecting his people. Now the most funny example of this, the most funny example of this, anyone know what I'm thinking about? What, what's the funniest example in the Bible where God protects his people? Can anyone think about this? Looking for my former pastors in the room. Anyone know the story of Elisha and the she-bear? Anyone heard this story before? So Elisha, not Elijah, is the understudy of Elijah. Elisha is going about his way, and uh, he goes down this road, and he's, he's being sent by God to be a prophet of God's word, and he goes down this road, and these teenagers jump out of the road, and these teenagers start to ridicule him. And does anyone know what they call him? They call him Baldy. They call him Baldy. They say, hey, bald head, you know, and they start to just make fun of him and tease him and ridicule him and kind of persecute him, which, which in this should give great comfort to every bald man here in this room today, right? right? Elisha does not take kindly to this criticism of these teenagers, and he calls upon God to curse these guys, and all of a sudden these bears come out of the woods and maul these people who are persecuting Elijah, Elisha. And so, look, next time somebody makes a quip about your hair, right, just know that this is an option, right? But, but no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> what you learn from that story, though, what you learn from that story is that God had given his word to Elisha, and he had entrusted his word, and Elisha had a big task to go do, right? And God was going to protect his word. He was going to protect his people. Right? We see that idea, that protective nature of a loving father with his people time and time again in the Old Testament. For those of you who have kids, right, think about what you would do to protect your kids. Right? We have been adopted children of God. That is who we are. That is what the nation of Israel was. Right? Adopted children. Not because they deserved it, but because God had shown them grace and said, you will be my nation, you will be my people. And he takes care of them and protects them. We also see in the Old Testament that God is patient and long-suffering. The first time I read the Old Testament through and through, it scared me to death. And all I read was wrath, 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 right? Anger and wrath. It scared me. The next time through, I got better context. The next time through, I have better context. Now when I read the Old Testament, I see mercy, 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 right? Time and time again, I see God's patience and his mercy. I see him just, just giving people chance after chance after chance, sending more people, more people, right? Even whenever they kill his prophets, right? They kill his prophets that he sends to warn them. And what does he send instead? He sends his son, right? If you're going to kill my prophets, surely I'll send my son, right? Time and time again, we see the loving patience of our God. And then lastly... We see salvation, right? God seeks salvation for humanity. He wouldn't be about this business. He wouldn't have sent his son. He wouldn't have done all these things in the Old Testament if he didn't have a desire for reconciliation with his people, right? So I want you to, as you read these stories, 
it's fine to wrestle with the issues, right? And we could go into cultural context and all kinds of different things to make you feel more comfortable with this, but I, I want you to actually just learn, learn the other side of this. What else are you seeing in the attributes of God in these stories that actually should give you great peace of, of, as children of God? I mean, get into some other things I think are going to trouble you here in just a second. Now, the other question. Here's the other quick, quick answer to a difficult question. What about all those innocent people? Right? What about all those people who maybe didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel in today's context? Right? Today's context, the famous example is, what about that tribesman on an island who's never had a witness of God come to them? What about the Native American in the 17, 1600s and 1700s here in America who, who had never known God? Right? What about all those people? What about all those people in the Old Testament who uh, were just going about their daily business and then a flood came? Right? I mean, what, what about all of those people? What happened to them? Right? Are they in hell? I mean, are, 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 you know, did they have a chance? Is that fair? Right? That's a tough, all those things are really, really tough questions. And so to help answer this question, let's bring out our Bibles. Let's go to Romans. I want to go to Romans. And I want to go to chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. I want to, I want to, I want to show you how Paul started Start it to explain this, and I'm going to give you a couple of views on this text. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Now remember, who is Paul writing to here? Right, to the Romans. It's a pretty easy question. Right, he's writing to the Romans. He's writing to a mostly, he's got, there's Jewish people in there, but a Jewish Gentile church in Rome. These are fairly new believers. Uh, these are people who maybe didn't completely grow up with an understanding of God. And, he, and, and they're going to be interacting with a bunch of people who've never understood the God of the Hebrew Scriptures or anything. So, so keep that in mind as we're reading this. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's what Paul's saying there. He's saying, Everybody knows God in some way. And I'll try to explain this a little bit better, but, but everyone knows God. God has made himself known to humanity. He has made himself known through creation. He's made himself known through different mechanisms. And, and if you keep going through this text in Romans, what you'll find Paul attempting to articulate is, is this idea that, that even as God has made himself known, we continue to fail to live up to their, our, our own standards. So, so if God has made himself known to people who are heathens, right, who are pagans, who are not, not religious at all, right, if he's made himself known, and, and within us we have this understanding because of the image of God that we're created and because of the creation, we have these understandings, we still have rebelled against our understanding of God. For, for the religious people at this time that Paul's writing, he goes, he goes, you have become religious and you have created your own rules to live by. And even in those rules, you have failed to live up to those standards. 
Paul's saying, you have, you have been born into sin. We have been born into original sin that came from the fall of man. And even with what God has revealed to you, we have failed. Right? We have failed. And if we understand what Paul is saying there, it leads us down the road that we can, we can assume that most of humanity, and honestly, most of humanity has failed to live up to our own standards. We've failed to live up to the standards of God. We've continued We've continued in rebellion. And that's a really, really difficult concept to really grasp. But if you think about the nature of sin and the corrupting nature of sin and the way sin, when it is uninterrupted, continues to permeate through our lives and through our society, it, does, it, doesn't, it, it really does make sense. That it would be very difficult to overcome that sin. So there's a couple views on this. Now, uh, I'll give you two views on this. There's a view called inclusivism, which is the belief that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, but there may be persons who are saved without knowing it. They're redeemed by the person and work of Christ, but th- that they don't consciously embrace. Uh, so simply put, they could be saved without ever hearing of Jesus. And this gets back to this idea the, of prevenient grace. And it's a, it's a term in Wesleyan theology uh, that helps you understand. And what it's really saying is, even in our sin, there is this underlying level of grace, this prevenient grace, this grace that comes from God, comes directly from God, that is making a way for people to be able to understand God's creation, understand God's revelation, and to respond to him. Even without complete knowledge of the gospel or complete knowledge of the Hebrew God, even with all that, that, it, that, that provenient grace is making a way where people can understand God and respond to him, even if it's at a basic level, right? That that grace is a mechanism that enables that. I'm going to read to you a quote from John Wesley. It says, Some great truths as the being and attributes of God and the difference between moral good and evil were known in some measures to the heathen world. The traces of them are to be found in all nations, so that in some sense it may be said to every child of man, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, even to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with, my, with thy God. With this truth he has, in some measure, enlightened every one that cometh into the world. And he continues to go on and he writes, God's first step to enlighten the understanding by that general knowledge of good and evil. To this he adds many secret reproofs. If they act contrary to this light, many inward convictions, which there is not a man on earth who has not often felt, at other time he gently moves their wills. He draws and woos them, as it were, to walk in the light. He instills into their heart good desires, though perhaps they know not from whence they come. Thus far he proceeds with all the children of men, yea, even with those who have not the knowledge of his written word. But in this, what a field of wisdom is displayed. Suppose man to be in some degree a free agent. How is every part of it suited to this end, to save man as man, to set life and death before him, and then persuade, not force him, to choose life? We see John Wesley having this optimism of grace, what, what you would hear from Cliff Sanders. If Cliff Sanders was up here teaching right now, he would be talking about this optimism of grace from Wesley, that God has provided a way for man to know him, even when, even when maybe the word had not reached them. Right. That being said, that being said, the passage in Romans is also true. 
what we see through most of humanity is that even if man has the ability, that provenient grace to know some attribute of God, to walk in the light, to walk humbly and understand justice in the way of God, that God provides that way, we still see man failing time and time again. You read the Old Testament and it's just a book of utter failure of the depravity of man. Right? Where we don't hold ourselves to the, the actual standards that, that are put forward. The more traditional view that you probably have heard in a lot of other churches is a bit more of an exclusive view. Uh, where they'll take the text and, and don't understand maybe that aspect of provenient grace. But you see in Romans 10, you see where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what Paul is saying in Romans 10, that you could trace that logic, is that the only way to be saved is to call upon Christ's name. The only way to call on Christ's name is to believe the gospel. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear it, and the only way to hear it is to be told. All right, and that shapes a lot of our missions efforts all throughout the world, to go and tell people about the gospel. What I really think you see in both of these views, though, is something very, very similar. That it is only by God's grace that people can be saved. Right? Both views would believe that. You just have one view that, that takes the line of saying God has made a way for everyone, no matter what, to be able to respond to him. And the other view is saying, saying no, the text is clear. There has to be the word actually preached for, for you to be able to respond. So you just see a couple distinctions in the text. But what we understand, though, is that the nature of man, we continue to fail over and over and over. It's only by God's grace that we can truly respond. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work through that. This will lead you to a conclusion that without some incredible act of God, humanity is doomed. Right? This is, this, under, both texts, would, or both ways of interpreting this, would lead you to that conclusion. Without some amazing, incredible act of God, for him to do something just, just so out there that humanity and mankind is completely doomed. Thankfully, God had this crazy supernatural act to be able to, to reconcile. What did he do? He sent his son. He sent his son. Right, so, so anyway, well, I want to keep going on this. So as we wrestle with all these questions, whether it be, whether it be the idea of the mass killings, whether it be not understanding the pattern, whether it be the, the idea of who can come to Christ. All those things are really difficult to understand, but they normally presuppose some, some underlying questions that we have and the, the or underlying issues or, or tension that we have. And the first one I had here is that the fact that God allows suffering means that there must be no God. That is a thought that creeps in my head very often, and I guarantee it's crept in your head before. But we have this distrust in us because if we see suffering, if we see these killings, if we see everything occurring, it, it really could lead you to conclude that there must be no God. How could God do that? Right? Our conclusion leads us to decide that maybe that's an evidence that there is no God. I want to read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis once felt this very same way. He looked upon the world, and he saw the unjustness of it all. He saw everything that was occurring. He says, that is my evidence against God. God cannot exist. Let me read you this quote. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? 
Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended upon saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turned out to be way too simple. Here's what Lewis is saying. You're looking at this world and you go, that's not fair. That's not fair. How did you get that idea of fairness? Right. The very fact that you can look at something and say that is not just means that you have been given an idea of justice. That idea of justice is imparted to you through God because you are made in his identity. You are made in his image. Right? That is how you know like, to walk humbly, to serve God. That, that is how you know. He has made you with that understanding. He has given you his word to explain what justice is. That's the only way you know. So the fact that you all feel that there is injustice, even in God, even in the things that God is doing, it actually is a proof of the existence of God because something has given you that. Uh, Alvin Platinga, as a philosopher, says it this way. He said, could there really be any such thing as a horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There could be such a thing only if there was a rash that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort, and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there is really such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Here's what Platini is saying. If you look at something and you say, that is wicked, right? That is evil, right? You're not getting there through a natural explanation. If we evolved, if Darwinian evolution is correct, right? There is not a good explanation for why we look at anything and say it's wicked, especially killing, especially killing. Darwinian evolution would say survival of the fittest, and we should actually be, be, be normally fairly happy about eliminating resources that could compete, right? So, so he's saying you've actually given yourself some evidence for God. Now, here's the other thing that I get wrapped up in. I look at all these questions, and I say one of my troubling things is if this is, in fact, God's actions, if God was in the direction of some of these killings, if, if, if God... You know, if, if some of these people were destined to hell, right, that doesn't seem fair to me, can I actually look at that God and say he is good? So maybe I agree that there is a God, but is he good? Right, is he good? And here's what I, if you ever have that feeling, I want you to remember that God did not choose our rebellion, we rebelled against him. God did not have to save us, but he made a way. Whenever you ever feel like our God may not be good, I want you to remember his long-suffering and his patience and the fact that God incarnate came to earth, lived a perfect life, died the most excruciating physical and spiritual death we could possibly imagine. Right? In his love, he made a way. Right? That is love. Right? You must remember the whole story. In the garden, when man failed, when man rebelled, right then he clothed them. He gave them what they didn't even ask for. And he said, one day you will crush the head of the serpent. I will send the one who will crush the head of the serpent. I will make a way to redeem all of this. In his love, he has done that. We have to remember the nature of God's love. Lastly, 
I think I've wrestled with when I've read the Old Testament and I read I read some of these things. I think I've wrestled with something that you probably wrestle with as well. I look at what God chooses to do with his people. I look at what, how God judges sin. I look at what he's done with the people, what he directed them, and I say, that is not what I would have done. That's not what I would have done. And whenever God, God contradicts me, I struggle with my faith in God. And has anyone ever been in that boat before? You read the Bible and go, that's not how I would have handled it. Anyone felt like that? Is that just me? Right? Maybe I'm just an arrogant, egotistical guy, right? But, but I, it's, I, have, I have felt that way many, many times. I go, that's not what I would have done. And so if that's not what I would have done, surely my logic leads me to that must not be God, or God must not be good, or God must not be real, because he didn't act in the way that I thought he should. I struggled with this a lot. A lot. My God is too small. Keller says this, He says, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. This reasoning is, of course, fallacious. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If God didn't handle it in the way that I did, man, I'm putting a lot of faith in myself. Honestly, let's go find our own truth. You are putting a lot of faith in yourself. And I've told people this before. God, help us if we are putting the faith in the humanity of mankind upon a 36-year-old guy from Kentucky. Right? I mean, mean, it's just not going to work. Right? But that's the faith. If, If we say... If we look at God's actions in the Bible and we say there was no good reason for those killings, it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess who, who died and made us? God, right? It's God. God is holy. God is just. God is love. And he chose these things to happen. There's a certain extent we just have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And he's not evil. We've seen long-standing examples of all of his love. He's not evil, Right? There was another guy in the Bible who had this issue. His name was Job. And Job, as you recall, because I read this chapter about once a month, um, Job, as you recall, thought that he knew better than God. In a respectful way, he thought he knew better than God. And finally, after he calls God out time and time again, God breaks his silence and he responds to Job. And Job is dealing with this same issue. God, you're not doing what I would have done. You're not doing what I understand you ought to be doing, so you must be wrong. Right? And then God responds, Job 38. Let me just read a few passages because I love this. Then God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or, or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place? <laughs> right? 
Sometimes we have to just accept the fact that God is God. We are not. We talked about it on Zoom. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. When you wrestle with some of these things, I want you to know that you are worshiping a loving God. And you may not get the answer to every single question, but I don't think we need it. Right? I don't think we need it. God was there from the beginning. He was the beginning. Right? God has made the way. We can trust in him. He's shown us time and time again. And why can we trust in him? Because every promise he has made, he has kept. We can trust in him. And they've been loving promises. I want to end on this Dostoevsky quote, and I'm going to give you one small piece of application. Dostoevsky says this, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in, world, in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. He's saying at the end of time, when we're revealed the glory of all, we'll look back and we will understand. We'll understand why God judged. We'll understand why God did what he did. And we'll sit there and say, yes, it was good. We will understand. I want to leave you with this. Last night, I witnessed something that, that was just made me think of saying, this is how we ought to live. I was at my son's baseball game. He's 10 years old, plays on a baseball game, baseball team with a lot of kids from the school. And in the middle of the baseball game, we had a gentleman who's here in our church who passed out in the stands, elderly gentleman. And uh, it looked really scary. I mean, it looked really scary. We thought there may be a stroke. We thought there may be a heart. We weren't sure, but it looked bad. And so as we're all attending to him, and we're, all, and we're getting 911 in there, and we're getting EMTs in, and we're all praying and taking care of him. What I didn't know was happening was that a bunch of 10-year-old little boys had gathered around in a circle out on the baseball field holding hands, and they were praying for that man. No one told them to do that. No one gave them that instruction. No adult was over there making sure they were praying. These 10-year-old little boys had gathered together holding hands, and they were praying for that man. Those 10-year-old little boys don't understand the answers to the questions we've asked today. They don't know. They don't know. But like children, they know that they've got a loving God who wanted to hear their prayers. And they turned to God in that moment, and they prayed. And I want you to know that that's, that's what this is all about. This is, this is who we're meant to be. We're meant to be like those 10-year-olds who say, we don't understand everything, God. We never will. But we know you love us. We're going to pray to you right now. We're going to trust in you and we're going to follow you. Like children, we're going to jump into the arms of a loving father. That's how we need to be. That's, that's how we need to apply this text. As these questions trouble you and trip you up, that's okay. We'll work through them. But I want you to remember the love of your father and he will make all things known. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for this time with these men and I thank you for your incredible word. I thank you for the loving promises you give us. We want to give you the benefit of the doubt because we know that you are God and we are not. We know that we can trust that you are just. You are the definition of just. 
The only reason we understand anything to be unjust is because you are just. And we trust you. We trust that in all these scenarios that, we, that trouble us, that you have worked them out, that you will be just and wise and loving. We trust in that. May you watch over us, O Lord. May we walk faithfully in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.